Salam and hello. My name is Lilibek Ella Piper, and you are listening to Uproot. I'm so glad you tuned in today because you are in for a treat. Just this year, I had the great pleasure of interviewing my friend and author, Sasanke Misenmang. Sasanke was in town to host The Moth here in Nairobi, and while she was here, we had a great conversation about her new book, Always Another Country. In fact, we hosted it live at the International School of Kenya, where Sasanke went to school. It was a wonderful conversation that looped us back and forth between Kenya, Zimbabwe, South Africa, and all over the world, really. I hope you'll enjoy my conversation with Sasanke, and most of all, I hope you'll check out her book, Always Another Country. You can find it on Amazon and lots of other places. So enjoy my conversation with Sasanke Misenmang. Salam and hello, and welcome to Uproot. My name is Lilibek Ella Piper, and I am thrilled to welcome you today to a very special edition of the show. We are live at the International School of Kenya. Say hello, everyone. Woo! And we are talking to one of ISK's very own native daughters, Sasanke Msinmang. Sasanke is an author, thinker, activist, who spent much of her childhood on the continent, living in Zambia, South Africa, and Kenya. And she is a South African writer who focuses on race, gender, and democracy. And Sasanke has just released her first book, Congratulations. Thank you. Always Another Country, a memoir about exile and home. And Sasanke's story really resonates with the whole idea behind Uproot, this idea that so many of us, sometimes without any autonomy or agency of our own, are uprooted from home, but then we create home where we go. We create worlds in which we can live and fight and work. And Sasange has done that through her brilliant writing across the world. And she's given voice to so many communities that haven't had representation, whose identities maybe have not been fully explored. So let me first start by saying thank you, Sasange. You're somebody that I admire and appreciate, and you're a voice that we need. So thank, thank you. you for being here, and thank you for sharing your stories. Well, it was worth coming to Nairobi just for that. <laughs> <laughs> Podcast over. We're done. <laughs> All right. So Sasange, I I guess um, for those who may not know your story as well and may have not yet read your book, which is still um, getting out into the world, let's maybe start with a story that I read from your book that talks about the day that Nelson Mandela was released from prison in 1990. Tell us what that day has meant to you as a, as a young person and, and where it took you from there. Okay, so thanks. It's wonderful to be at ISK um, and to look at how this school has changed so much in the <laughs> 25 years since I was You let the here. cat out of the bag. Now we know how old you I are. I did. Wow. <laughs> okay. So, so, so lots to talk about. Um, and yeah, the, the story about Nelson Mandela that I talk about in my book. I was living in Kenya, living in Nairobi, um, and I would have been in grade 11. And the year is 1990. It's February. And CNN had just come to Kenya. So... This was already like big things, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, um, and, and I think part of the context of that time was that no one had seen Nelson Mandela for 27 years. So we didn't actually physically know what the man looked like. And I remember there was a, a Time magazine mm. cover that kind of speculated about what he would look like after all those years. Um, and, and when I was growing up, my parents, uh, so my father left South Africa in 1960, he was 21 years old, and he fled uh, you know, across the border uh, to 
to be a freedom fighter. I went to Russia, mm -hmm. trained, uh, you know, in guns and things that we weren't supposed to know about. <laughs> and, and growing up, uh, I was very much part of a community of the African National Congress, and everyone was freedom fighters. And because you're a kid, you kind of think that's normal. Yeah. Um, but at some stage in our teens, I kind of, my sisters and I were like, you know, our parents are sort of a little bit out to lunch. Like they think that one day South Africa will be free and clearly it will not. The guy has been in jail for 27 years, right? You really? So even as a part of the inner workings so of the movement, you didn't see that By the time day. we were teenagers, we yeah. kind of thought we need another plan, Yeah. right? Yeah. And mm -hmm. so, and then of course it was happening. It was mm -hmm. happening and he's freed. Mm -hmm. And so it was an amazing day. Uh, it was the day when, when he came out and he was holding hands with Winnie Mandela and it was beautiful and kind of surreal. Yeah. And that day literally changed my life. What did, what, I, I remember that day watching it with my parents and we were all weeping because he was such a symbol for everybody on the continent yeah. of, of what yeah. the struggle yeah, the sacrifice of the struggle, yeah. and he had lived to tell it somehow, or he was about to. What, did, how, what were the emotions you felt? What was at the surface for you? So for, for us, it was very, um, there was a very practical implication, which was that um, having been exiled and therefore not being allowed back in the country, we were finally going, we could see the beginning of mm. a path home. Yeah. And because we had lived in many different countries, uh, um, you know, T today, we know of many people who leave their countries and have no papers, no citizenship, and so that was very much, you know, my experience as a child, born stateless, you know, all of those mm. things that you kind of read about, and when yeah. you live it, it doesn't really feel like, you know, you don't feel as though you're a stateless person, but of course, we were stateless. Sure. Um, and so what it meant um, was that we could finally go home. Yeah. And yeah. so a few months later, I did. You packed I up and left. got on a plane. Um, we had some family who were here uh, who were also exiles living in Nairobi. Mm. And my own, my, my father was very skeptical. And at that time, there was a lot of distrust. Mm -hmm. And so thought that it may have been a trap. And so especially mm. for the freedom fighters, the people who had carried guns and had been part of the, the, the armed struggle, there was an ambivalence about whether or not it was um, OK to go back into the country. Okay. So my dad hung, hang back mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. my sisters and my mom they all stayed but okay. I was like I'm going I'm done I'm out I'm on my way <laughs> so at um at 17 I came got on a plane and we went to South Africa and I met my grandfather and I met my cousins and it was it was very surreal yeah to meet people who look just like you yeah and you've never seen them before. Yeah, yeah you know, yeah. it's like wow, you're you're actually my physical cousin. And when you grow up in exile, you grow up and you create family. Of course. So yeah. the the community of South Africans around you become your family. Yeah. But you have no sense of what it is like to, to share genetic, you know, to share DNA with people and to look like people. And it's very weird to have the same man mannerisms as someone, who you've actually never seen before. Yeah. I want to think about that idea of family because I think for so many of our kids here who are growing up outside of their home country, um, so those, those are our kids, but then we can think about so many other communities who are growing up outside of their homes yeah. with or without the, the choice. 
they do have to create family because yeah. you don't have auntie such and such. And yeah. so I have become now Auntie Lily to so many children. Yeah. And my children are confused yeah. about who their real cousins are, quote unquote, yeah. and, and who are their blood relatives. What did that look like for you in, in that season in the, in the early 90s, late 80s to be creating family in Nairobi? So my mother was an extraordinary woman. And the difference between my parents was that my father was a freedom fighter and my mother was an accountant. So, <laughs> I love this. I love the story already. So my mother was very practical. My mother was all about handling business, creating networks, figuring out how we were going to actually live mm-hmm. uh, as stateless people, yeah, right? Right, right. Uh, it doesn't just happen, right? right? And so, and so, my dad was all about you know revolution and you know changing the world, and yeah. so that balance is what helped us to forge community, which mm-hmm. is what led us to the privileged situation of mm. being in an ISK. Yeah. Profoundly privileged, right? Yeah, absolutely. And so when we were, uh, so the first seven years of my life, we lived in Zambia, and in that, we were full-time, you know, my father was a full-time revolutionary. Which <laughs> what sounds were the crazy, dinner table conversations which crazy about? when you describe it yeah, now, but actually, yeah. like, that's what they were. So the ANC, um, you know, literally raised, raised us, paid for mm. a lot. Mm. My mother, mm was an accounting student when she finished um, her studies. She, was, um, she worked for the Zambian government and was given a flat in a, in a you know, use of a flat, which yeah. many public servants in post-independence Africa. It was very much that time. And so she made a plan for us. So she then supported us. Mm. And then when it became clear that um, she was a Swazi citizen, and when it okay. became clear that um, she was also a woman, she was my mother. <laughs> um, but what it meant as a Swazi woman was that she could not pass on citizenship to her children. Okay. So she had this husband who was um, stateless, who had cobbled together funny, sh- shady, you know, passport mm-hmm. situations. Yeah. And then she herself could not pass on citizenship to her girls. And so they needed to make a plan. Right. So, for, so it meant, and this is, a, I think, a situation that many refugees and migrants find themselves in all around the world. It meant going to a, a government office in Swaziland every year to beg, can my children stay on my passport? Mm. To beg, right? And you know how that works. That works is you're at the mercy of whatever government official you happen to, Absolutely. whatever networks, whatever your family can, can use to mm-hmm. make sure that that's, and that was not a sustainable plan. Um, my, she convinced my father to um, continue his education. He did, so was part-time studenting and revolutioning. Um, but she pushed him, <laughs> pushed him to finish his degree, did that, and then we moved to Kenya. Um, he then was able to, he worked as an intern for World Food Program okay. uh, and was able to have like a, a UN, had a laissez-passer, which meant something then, and they gave it to him without any other citizenship. Okay. And, that, hmm. and so she pushed and pushed. And then finally, when I was 10, she said, we need to apply for asylum. So Canada gave us political asylum. And that's when we got passports. Okay. So okay. that was the change. That's yeah. what allowed us to, right? So yeah. in all of those places, my mother created networks. She met other women. She always had a plan. She always had a job. Um, she, she was everything in terms yeah. of determining our sense of family. She was yeah. everybody's auntie. She was yeah. Lily. Yeah. <laughs> um, we, met, we met lots of kids. We, we, we had a plan because my mother made a plan. Yeah, what strikes me about that is how so much hasn't changed in the world in some ways, that there are still communities of women and, 
and men who are having to make something out of nothing, yeah. you know, to yeah. create identity and family for their families in very unstable times. I want to touch on something you said that you also say in your book, which I found to be a really profound statement that captures kind of our children who are growing up in very close proximity, we were talking about this earlier, to, to poverty and to poor communities, and yet go to a school like ISK mm. with all of its bells and whistles and yeah. all of its privileges. And you say that when you went back to South Africa after that um, momentous moment when after Mandela was released, that you realized that you had the articulate outrage of the entitled. The articulate outrage of the entitled. And it's, it, you seem to be you know, very self-deprecating in that statement and yet making a very powerful assessment of maybe where our kids and where our families, where we struggle. Tell me a little bit about more of that. Yeah, I mean... You know, this place is uh, very fancy. <laughs> yeah, if you, could, if you could only see us in our nice carpet, our nice microphone. It's even fancier than when I went here. And it was fancy, and it, it was very fancy then. Mm. Uh, so you can't be a middle-class African, uh, even if, as in my case, that middle-classness is hard won. Yeah. And, you know, in your lifetime, you, mm-hmm. you can feel your, your, your change. But you can't be a middle-class person... Um, and in this setting, an elite person in Africa without being very aware uh, of that. Uh, And it brings a certain responsibility, uh, but it also brings a certain, if you're not careful, entitlement to your place in a society, an expectation that there will be a driver, Mm -hmm. that things must hurry, things must move quickly, Mm -hmm. because I'm here, haraka, haraka, you know, and I love the Tanzanians, because the Tanzanians are like, you know, when Kenyans, this used to be the case, you know, Kenyans would go to Dar es Salaam, and it would be that haraka, haraka mentality, and Tanzanians would be like, ah, haraka niyako, you know, that's your rush, just relax yeah you know yeah. I will be at my pace and so I think a society in which there are, is significant poverty and in which you reside on the the upper echelons of that society requires you to have a certain gratitude a certain grace with your uh, with your riches mm. um, as a principle uh, but also, I think, instrumentally and pragmatically, as a, as a strategy for survival, because people, uh, this is not a sustainable situation. Yeah, and, yeah. I, and I speak not only of Kenya, but I speak of every country uh, on this continent, that people's poverty um, and anger will not be contained uh, forever. Absolutely. And so it behooves us to, to both have strategies for how we um, deal with and work towards um, getting rid of those divides and that inequality, but also in the meantime to conduct ourselves with a certain amount of humility because we know that we did nothing most of the time yeah. to earn the position into which we are born. Yeah, you, you I think are encapsulating for me this idea of privilege. Um, I remember some time ago somebody said to me, you know, we recognize sometimes the obvious privilege we have economically. Yeah. Uh, maybe by gender or, or race or whatnot, but sometimes we don't identify the very subtle privileges that invade our lives. So you say that we need to have a plan for justice, a plan to kind of respond to this. How, how do we do that? Well, before I answer that question, I want to, to just go back to this idea of, um, of not being aware of your privilege, because mm. I think that there is a false innocence mm. Uh, mm. that we often... Um, 
there's a way in which, as a privileged person, you can pretend not to be aware of your privilege. Mm. And that is not a good thing. Yeah. And um, especially in the face of such, you know, the obviousness of other people's lack of privilege. So I think it's important um, when people say, um, I didn't know that I... Uh, I didn't know that I had this privilege. I think it's important to in interrogate that because sometimes it's true on face value, but often it's true because we want it to be true. Absolutely. That we don't want to know how much we have mm -hmm. because to know and accept how much you have has an implication for what someone else doesn't have. Absolutely. And I think it, um, that's a hard thing to, to deal with. In my book, I talk a lot as a South African who's part of a new society and very much part of an elite Right? So all the struggle and all the you know, freedom fighting, when we came back to South Africa, people who had been in exile, who had had an opportunity for education, became the rulers of that society. And so very much sitting on top of extreme poverty, yeah. extreme inequality, and a system that had made sure that people did not have education, yeah. were wrongly educated. So very huge divide between myself and many of the people who would be my same age, right? Absolutely. So I spend a lot of time in my book really coming to terms with and talking about my own privilege mm. as a middle class person, in large part because South Africa has such a huge problem of racial privilege. Absolutely. So I can't hold my fellow white South African compatriots mm -hmm. to account for their privilege, white privilege, right. if I can't also accept and be able to talk about Absolutely. my middle class and elite privilege as a black South African, but one who has a lot of the, you know, tools in my, in my, in my knapsack yeah. that Absolutely. I'm carrying. So I think it's important yeah. to be able to do that. It is. It's a loaded question. Question. Um, you know, my Ethiopian cousins and I have to often have this conversation about the tension between the diaspora and those back at home, the tension between those at home who have, who feel like at least I came home and I'm doing something, and yet there's that massive tension between, like you said, sitting on top of a society that's built on yeah. the work and the, the heartbreak of others. I want to visit something you said about why you wrote your book, um, because we, we could talk about this all day probably, but you said something I thought was really interesting. You said, I'm piecing myself back together so that never again will I feel a need, will I feel I need a hero. I've written this book because too few of us, women, refugees, South Africans, black people, queers, believe in our instincts enough to know that our hearts will be our saviors. Wow. <laughs> I, just, I, I love those words to think that I will not have to need a hero. Um, when you went back to South Africa, you started just to talk about it here. Um, when did you start to realize that you didn't need a hero? So I think um, because I grew up in a very particular moment where Nelson Mandela was our, our hero uh, and when a lot of freedom fighters were ascribed uh, very important status um, and because I grew up in post-independence Africa with uh, uh, Kenneth Kaunda as a sort of founding president of Zambia, this benevolent, wonderful leader, uh, Jomo Kenyatta who fought for freedom here. Uh, you know, Kenya's story is slightly different because then Daniel Arab Moy came who wasn't mm -hmm. a freedom fighter and I think many of us had no illusions about what was happening sure. in Kenya in the 80s when we lived here. Uh, but in any case, this whole <laughs> idea of big men in Africa yeah. as big saviors, as people who liberated us and therefore we are beholden to them forever, mm. is very insidious and it's part of the post-independence Africa story that many of us have inherited. Um, and so in South Africa, we had that in overdrive, you know, that mm. idea that these liberators saved us from 
um, apartheid saved us from racism, uh, and they will now deliver us freedom. And I think it was into the, the, uh, the second president. So in some ways, like, it's wonderful to have Saint Mandela. Sure. So even though there were, of course, things. Yesterday was my birthday. And Happy my birthday. Thank, thank you. <laughs> and, my, and we have a family WhatsApp group. Family WhatsApp groups are the worst. They're the worst. They are the worst. But so, the best also. I love them. <laughs> so we have a family WhatsApp group. And my dad was, uh, you know, sending a long, like, you know, wonderful message about how great I am because I am the firstborn and I am therefore the favorite, <laughs> deservedly so. Um, so he was sending this long thing and he was like, you know, uh, and it was sort of um, uh, very proverb-like, you know, she who, you know, the very African thing, yeah. you know, hail the firstborn, you know, that kind of thing. Like, he <laughs> I'm was also firstborn, me. so I love those messages. He was yes. teasing me. And one of the things is like, she who was not afraid to insult Nelson Mandela, right? Mm. So, <laughs> mm. so, so I have, of course, been very critical, including of our first president. But in a, in a way, um, he deserves a certain place. And it's good to have someone who occupies the sort of place that he occupied. Mm. But after that, I think that our leadership in South Africa has been patchy at best. Mm. And it is frustrating. I think many people in the world, many Americans can relate now to what it means to have a frustrating <laughs> head of state. Oh, that we can, yes. Um, but, but it is also a profoundly important thing to recognize that a leader cannot determine the quality of a democracy. So, so, so mm. what it is that it forces you to think about is what is the responsibility of citizens, what it means to be able to actively take up and, and resist and fight for and imagine and dream in multiple ways the kind of society that you want to live in. Absolutely. And so that's why this idea of heroes is very important to kind of dispel the myth. Absolutely. We're running out of time a bit. We're going to continue the conversation in two parts. But I, I kind of want you to end on this idea having a plan for justice, being our own heroes, letting us, what does that mean to some of our students who are here, who are young, who are still thinking about what their futures will be? What would you say to them? So as an ISK, uh, someone who went to ISK, this place was um, very important in my own sense of thinking about my place in the world. And that's because uh, we did have um, teachers who allowed us to be critical, to think broadly, to challenge ideas, mm. to challenge each other. Um, so I think, I think it's a very difficult time to be a young person yeah. because, you know, globalization, everything is sped up so yeah. fast and your options are both everything in the world and then a very narrow stream of things to do. Mm. So I would say that um, one of the most important things to, to be at this stage in your lives is somebody who asks a lot of questions. I think curiosity is so underrated and yet it is so important in, in figuring out um, it's figuring a way, making mm, a way. I think yeah. you don't make a way, especially in this kind of world, but without an intense, uh, studied interest in being curious. Hmm, I love that curiosity as a way forward, as a way of justice. So Sasanki, one of the things I wanted to ask you about is you, you have been really vocal and bold. You mentioned it just now, uh, willing to critique those that we hold in the highest esteem at times. You've been critical of Australia. You've been critical of South Africa. You've been critical of Kenya. I mean, really, Sasanki, your list is, is long. But, I, but you've done so, I think, um, out of a search for truth and, and a push towards um, yeah, the betterment of, your, of the communities that you're connected to and, and the ones that you're not. You talk about this idea of holding space for people that you disagree with. How do you do that? That's hard in this age, as you've already mentioned, of, of dealing with um, 
leaders who we don't respect, whose policies adversely affect our people or people we care about? How do you hold space for somebody that you disagree with authentically? So I think it's, um, if there's anything that's important at this moment, I think it's that. Mm. Um, and it, it both holds for you know, big picture conversations with you know, leaders that we uh, have fundamental disagreements with. But increasingly, um, in the last few years, I don't write as much as I used to about national politics in South Africa or even national politics in any particular space because I, I think that the real game is in, in this kind of interaction. Mm -hmm. And so increasingly, I worry about the inability for people in settings like this to find one another. Yeah. And so for me, when I talk about holding space for those that you disagree with, I mean like we're having a conversation about Israel and Palestine as students. We used to have this argument all the time when I was at ISK because ISK, as you know, is a place with lots and lots of students from different parts of the world. And so I was, you know, an ANC kid with strong alliances sure. to the PLO. And then we would have, you know, I remember our friend Yaron, who was, you know, Israeli. And yeah. it's like, hmm. So how yeah. do you have a, a, a conversation that matters deeply to you, that is about fundamental issues of principle? Absolutely. And you really disagree with one another. Absolutely. And not kill one another. Yeah. Because that ability to have that conversation, and not only to have it and not kill one another, but to have it and continue to go to school with each other every day, and not be giving each other side eyes and hating each other mm -hmm. when you see one another, that's the work. Absolutely. Um, and so I think you, you do it by having um, an ability to hear why this other person would even think that. What is it about them or this issue that would even allow them to think something that you so fundamentally disagree with. And if you can find that thing, then you can find a way to hold one another's disagreements without agreeing to it, without capitulating, right? Yeah. Without agreeing with one another, you still have to be able to see how someone can find their way to that position. Because if you can't, then we can't live together. Yeah. And then that's the end of democracy, that's the end of yeah. community, that's the end, and, and a community that doesn't have people who can disagree with each other. What kind of, I mean, that's, that. and that's also boring. So you're saying I have to stop defriending people on Facebook when they offend me. <laughs> I'm not saying that. Because <laughs> social media adds a whole other complexity to the ability to engage I know. meaningfully, you know, and yet it's the default. I know, so but I also, so I never defend people on Facebook. Yeah. In oh, part because that, yeah. Facebook doesn't matter very much to me. Yeah. Um, so I'm on it. Uh, people tell me all the time, I'm not on Facebook. And I'm like, that's fine. I respect that. But the reason why I won't get off it is because it doesn't mean very much to me. Because sure. it's not real life. Sure. So it's like, I feel like social media, what I want, what I certainly want for my children once they get onto social media, is for them to be, to be able to play on it. And unfortunately, for too many young people, social media is life. Yeah, absolutely. It becomes too important. So it holds a disproportionate power. Mm -hmm. And so I want 
to be able to have a light relationship with it, mm-hmm. to be mm-hmm. able to come and go with it, to see like some fun things and some memes, to read some really interesting articles and be like, oh, that was Get really a group smart. On and then just keep to on, watch yeah. people fighting yeah. and be like, whoa, <laughs> sorry, yeah, and just be light with it, yeah. you know, like yeah. just yeah. Be, just be light with it. Yeah, I think it's like another conversation for another time because I think <laughs> whether we like it or not, it's playing a larger role. It's too important. Um, it's it's really important and it's shaping, I think, how we communicate yeah. in a lot of ways. It's too important. Yeah. yeah. Well, speaking of communicating, let, let's go to some questions that we might have from some of our students and some of our audience members. So, good morning. I had a question. You talked earlier about um, how people fought with guns and people fought for independence. And so after Africa has begun, there's the rest of us, us young people, who sort of now have to follow in the footsteps of those who fought for us, those who built for us. And so it just sometimes sort of feels like a burden because there's all these great people behind you. And it's just, what do you think is our path for the African children of today and tomorrow? I think it's important to demystify the greatness of the people who came before. So the first one is don't feel the burden so strongly because they weren't perfect. Also, they were living in a time before social media. So who knows (laughs) all the things that they got up to. So I think dispelling the myth of heroism, that's why I say there are no heroes. Um, I think there were people who did some amazing things um, but the idea of heroism, I think, is very insidious and, and it paralyzes the rest of us who come after. So recognize that there weren't heroes and then think about what is, what is your piece of the thing? What can you do that's your thing that you're interested in, um, that will help, that will allow you to live a life where when, when, you, when you finally close your eyes, you feel that not only did, did you do no harm, but you did something for someone, hmm. yeah. So that it does. So I'm saying the stakes don't have to be so high. Yeah. Thank you. Next question. Um, you talked about racial segregation in South Africa. Um, I just want to know how deep it went. Like, is there was was there also colorism within the black community? So, you know, how do you address such deep racial um, segregation and hatred towards one another, especially within your own race? Like, how do you address yeah. that? And yeah. Mm. So South Africa is interesting because, um, of course, there's colorism in every, everywhere where there's racism, there's colorism, right? Because the two go together. They're profoundly interlinked. If people didn't make a big deal about um, somebody being black, then within the black community, you wouldn't make a big deal about someone being lighter or darker. The relationship between lightness and darkness is a relationship, is a relationship that is founded on white supremacy. So. So, so whiteness being the best, and then everything else from there goes downhill, right? So of course it's there, but my preference is always to deal with the big problem. The big problem is racism, and then colorism is an offshoot. And so I try not to get wound up in those side conversations, because the real eye on the prize is to deal with um, that fundamental question, which is about how it is that people can see humanity is defined by something as superficial as the color of our skin. So we deal with that, then we deal with the colorism as, a, as it will naturally uh, kind of fall away. Yeah. Ms. Sisonke, thank you so much for your time today. I like today. when they call me That's Ms. my baby, that's my daughter. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, so ISK is full of very privileged students from all over the world. 
But for you, you were, had a very different background than everyone here, I'm sure. So I just want to ask, how did you kind of find your way when your story was so different from everyone else in a, in a more broader sense? How can we find our way when we are so different from those around us? Yeah, it's a really great question. So in a sense, my story was um, very different, and in another, it was very similar. Uh, so it was different in that uh, my reasons you know, for being here and the, the cobbly road which brought me here were, were different. At the same time, once we had that passport, um, which is why you know, in all these debates about immigration and all the stuff that is happening around the world mm -hmm. now, I feel like the stakes are so high because I know what it means mm -hmm. to have that passport. So that passport was everything for us. Mm -hmm. It literally was a passport to economic progress, to all the things that my parents dreamed of and strived for were now possible because we, we were Canadians. <laughs> so it meant that my dad could get a good job that was commensurate with the education that my mom had pushed him into investing in. It meant uh, that we could, so then my dad gets this job with care. So now we're expats. So when we came back to Kenya, so we lived in Kenya twice, first time before status. <laughs> Before, when you were stateless and when you were <laughs> And then yeah. after, right? And that difference of just like 10 years just was the, was the difference. So we come back to Kenya um, with the red plates, right? <laughs> For those of you who don't know, red plates are diplomatic, diplomatic plates here plates. in Kenya. And so you get a little bit more Which means access. we are on the inside of the bubble. And yet, of course, our life in Kenya is a life uh, in which, because my father never stopped. Uh, we, went, we were always part of a, the African National Congress and the community here. So on weekends, if you come to my house, who's there? Students, <laughs> you know, who are living in Kenya, who we feed on, a, you know, the, our house was always full of, you know, uh, ANC people. Um, you know, people planning for, you know, world conference on, on, you know, African women is here and like I'm licking envelope, you know, so my life in a sense was, very rich because of that. And so it was never an option to, for us to forget who we were. So we had this double life. Um, and I, again, I credit my mother in making it very clear to us that this is one of the benefits of that passport. This is why I fought for you kids to have this passport. But don't for one second think that this means that this is who you are. So I don't know if that's a, round, that's a roundabout way of answering your question, but it is very important to have a very strong connection between your individual self who has these privileges and the community from which you come which doesn't have those privileges. And thinking about a way not to have other people join the bubble, but for thinking about how you destroy the bubble is the work, right? So it's not just about how do I survive and assimilate. It's like what are we going to do so that this thing is extended? to a far greater amount of people. Yeah, I like that idea of your work is to destroy the bubble. That's good. From pragmatism, the pragmatism of your mother to the I will change the world of your father, what is your goal, Mrs. Sonken? How has it developed? <laughs> That's great, great question. So I, in, in a talk that I did, I called myself a pragmatic idealist. So one of the probably, every, anyone who knows me knows that one of the most frustrating things about me is that I often refuse to choose. Um, I think that the world is complicated. I think that answers to things are often both. Um, it's not and it's not or. It's not this or that. It's often both. And so I think 
uh, for me, what I, what is important is both to understand that the world needs to be better, and then it is to recognize that we live in it now, and so in the now, we have to hopefully act with humility and all of the things that are important, but that we also have to be practical, and that's why I talk about mm -hmm. a plan for justice. So a dream for justice is great, but you have to have a plan for it. So what are the steps that we need to take day by day in order to make things happen? So in my own life, that's meant you know, working for organizations that fight for human rights. It's meant you know, starting a youth NGO yeah. that was not necessarily very effective, but that's where you learn your planning skills, right? By doing stuff and then doing really badly at it and realizing, oh, maybe I shouldn't be the boss of something when I'm 23 because I actually don't know what I'm doing. Um, you know, but I think, so I try to both be have the pragmatism of my accountant mother, um, uh, who got a lot done, uh, but also um, have the passion and the idealism of, of, of my dad, who's still dreaming and still, you know, writing articles, you know, in the paper every week about saving the African National Congress. You know, this is our biggest fight. I'm like, you can't save it. It's done. And he's like, no, I still believe. So the daughter he raised now has become his greatest uh, <laughs> probably challenge. Okay. Thanks for that question. That was great. I'm just curious to hear what books or thinkers or authors you would recommend this young, you know, generation really get a hold of. Um, Maybe they're old school guys, maybe they're new, new school folks, oh, but um, what would you recommend? question. So, I mean, I always recommend, you know, it's cliche, but Toni Morrison, there's, course, no, yeah. there's no literature, there's no contemporary mm. literature, global, mm. without Toni Morrison. Mm. Um, so, and every book is amazing, um, but I think... Uh, Sula, The Bluest Eye yeah, are obviously yeah. the classics. Absolutely. Um, Beloved is probably my favorite Toni Morrison book. It's a difficult read, but an it important one, yeah. It is a difficult read, yeah. but I loved it. Mm. Tar Baby is amazing. Mm. So anyway, okay, we could talk about so Toni Morrison forever. Canon. Excellent. Yep. Um, when I was in college, I read a lot of um, poetry, because you yeah, do that when course, you're in college, yeah. and I love Nikki Giovanni. Yeah. I love her way with words. Um, mm. Well, speaking of Nikki Joey, let me ask you a question. Um, I love her too. She has a line in one of her poems, I don't remember the title of the poem, that has always stayed with me, but it actually makes me think of you, if you don't mind me asking something a little bit personal, um, because there's a line in one of her poems, love poem, sh where she says, um, I changed my life to love you. Do you know That's that right. line? I love yes, that and it poem. kind of rings true because in some of your writing, you've talked yeah. about yeah. growing up as a black, proud ANC daughter who then marries a man who yes. is not. ANC son necessarily yeah, and is white and is white and yeah. kind of a new identity that yeah. comes from that yeah Tell me about that so I spent there's actually a chapter on him in mm. my book um and it's interesting because the way I, that I feel about being in a relationship with a white man is the same way that I feel about being black okay which okay. is that it means everything and it means nothing at all sure so um I was uh, being interviewed by um, a friend of my sister's okay. in South Africa a little while ago. And she was like, so, like, when you see an interracial couple walking down the street, like, <laughs> yeah. what do you do? Yeah. And I was like, oh, my God, I stare. <laughs> 
And then do you realize it's a mirror? It's like, it's us. And she was so shocked. And she was like, why are you staring? And I'm like, well, I'm staring because it would be a lie to pretend that it's the norm. Mm -hmm. And I'm also staring, frankly, because it's important to be honest about what it is that people have issues with with interracial relationships right right? so to be like oh and i think there are two schools of thought when it comes to interracial relationships there's people who deny that it's an issue Mm -hmm. and are like we're all humans we can just love each other i don't see color which is ridiculous right right? so if you're saying that i'm worried about your relationship Right. If that's the school of thought mm-hmm. that you're in. If everyone's translucent, then exactly. you're then, missing something. Then it also means that in your relationship with someone who is a different race from you, there are many silences. Absolutely. And, that, mm. and there are big, many important silences. silences like that. And yeah. that's not a healthy thing for any relationship. Absolutely. Right? So that's the one school of thought. And then there's a school of thought that is like, don't be in an interracial relationship because... Um, the person will never understand you. Yeah. There are experiences that you will never be able to relate to. And then, and you know, obviously my response to that is that if, if that were the root, and I respect it, of course, sure. because there are so many things in life that are difficult that you don't want to have to explain mm-hmm. yourself mm-hmm. constantly and explain your um, experience. And race is such a critical one. So yeah. I, I respect it. I don't agree with it, obviously, sure. because I've made different choices, but I respect it. But obviously my response to that also is like, then I would be married to a woman who's five foot nine and bald and (laughs) right right. and I just don't swing that way right right? right, and so and so I think there has to Mm. be space in life for understanding um attraction is there is something that there are some things that we can't define absolutely um but also that if you seek in a partner yourself then you are likely to be stunted in terms of what is possible in your own life right because you know you need difference yeah, and you may be perhaps already in a relationship yeah. with yourself, so yeah. therefore there's not much space yeah. for maybe <laughs> exactly. another, another person. Exactly, Absolutely. exactly. exactly. Right. So that was a bit of a sidetrack question, yeah. but from, from our love of Nikki Giovanni. Yes. Um, but you know, I, you mentioned both Morrison and Giovanni are, are kind of authors, I don't want to say of our generation, but certainly were yeah. at the forefront of what I was thinking about and influenced me then. Do you feel like there is um, a void in current voices, or do you no. feel that there is... What murder? a rich generation yeah. of writers. So. Yeah. I mean, there's our obvious mm-hmm. uh, sort of um, iconic Chimamanda, who, sure. you know, everyone must read. Um, she's lyrical and beautiful and so smart in what she, the way that she writes. Um, so obviously, in terms of fiction, um, I love her. As a person who's writing a, a lot within the South African context, mm-hmm. there are many really interesting young and up-and-coming up um, uh, authors. Mohale Mashiho... Um, Pumla Kola, who's mm-hmm. an amazing feminist academic, mm-hmm. um, Riri Tlabi, um, so many, you know, really interesting South African writers. Nadia Davids, yeah. I mean, I could go on. Uh, Barbara Boswell, many, many, many. Are, are we having a moment in literature and writing um, for the the black feminist voice, or do you feel this is as it, you know, just an evolution maybe of where I think writing has been going? So I think that um, part of what's different about this time is um social media yeah so we've always had um african women writing so you know i um i always say that i write into an existing cacophony of voices there yeah. have been so many Bucci, emma cheta yeah. you know our own Wang- wangari Mathai, who's yeah. been activists but also writing for many yeah. years 
um, Titi Dangaremba from Zimbabwe with mm-hmm. Nervous Conditions, which was like yeah. such a defining book for yeah. you know me growing up. That first line, I was not sad when my brother died. Like yeah. that opening line for a book, like mm. you want to read this, yeah. you know. Um, so, so I think they've always been African women writing under extraordinary difficult circumstances. Yeah. Uh, many of those books are out of print. Yeah. Um, so it's not to pretend that African women have been read, but we've certainly been writing. Absolutely. Uh, and I think we've always been one another's biggest readers. Absolutely. Um, but I think there is a moment in which um, it's no longer thought of as extraordinary for mm. African women to be writing and what a pleasure absolutely for it to just be taken as the norm which means our daughters will then take it for granted that they can or can't do it depending on how they feel absolutely yeah it's interesting you put it that way because I think for our my kids who um, range from 10 to 15 and you know being Ethiopian American their first president that they remember is Barack Obama so for them it is normal that a man who looks like their father leads the United States Amazing. that's their normal you exactly. know, their normal is Michelle Obama being exactly. an advocate and, a, and a, a force for good and so it is powerful then to have conversations with them about the struggle because then sometimes they get it they experience it on their own level but other times they're like but yeah. we have and we are and and they see th- their lens is changing you Absolutely. Know, which, is, which is good it, it's, it's it should be um Back to black feminism um, a bit. A lot of movements that have maybe been based in the U.S. but certainly have global reach, um, the Black Lives Matter movement, the Me Too movement, have been heralded by black women. They're black women who gave voice to communities who have been marginalized, who've been oppressed, and really resisting oppression and, and have been organizing. These women have also met opposition, rightfully so, and criticism. And there's been, I think, uh, some recent conversations that I've been really interested about. How do we... Um, is it all for one or all, or, mm, you know, yeah. uh, I forget the saying, what's, it's all for one or one, one for, for all. all. Exactly. Yeah. Like, are we, is that necessary anymore? Or is there space enough for us to disagree amongst ourselves? Is there, is it going to cause a weakness in the movement if we, you know, don't all fall behind the same hashtag or fall behind yeah. the same mottos? Yeah. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. So, I mean, I think the Me Too movement is, in, is very interesting in that, um, on the one hand, it is infuriating that work that many of us have been doing for many years, mm. fighting for gender justice in different contexts, knowing one another across borders mm. and boundaries, uh, is sort of in the trenches without a hashtag because a hashtag would have been completely irrelevant sure. to the kind of work <laughs> that it yeah. takes yeah. to deal with sexual harassment, to deal with sexual assault and gender-based violence, right? Where mm-hmm. does hashtag even fit in that right. for the last 20 years? It is infuriating for it on the one hand to uh, be seen as something that just happened right, and to be associated with Hollywood. Mm-hmm. So on the one hand, that is like, wow, really? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and on the other hand, my goodness, how amazing that what we have been fighting for all these years, which is for questions of rape culture, of misogyny, of male entitlement, to be mainstream Absolutely. and for people to finally get it. So on the other hand, I'm like, yes, fantastic. Mm-hmm. Good for you, me too, mm-hmm. right? And, and then on the other hand, it's like infuriating that it's because it's Hollywood women who are, by virtue of what they look like, glamorous and beautiful, and so the world cares because it happened to them, Absolutely. right? So, so I think balancing all of those understandings of why the Me Too moment um, has taken hold so firmly and so strongly, it is important 
to understand it, not in order to tear it down, because it is precisely what we've been fighting for, right. but it's important to understand it so that you understand where its vulnerabilities lie. Yeah, yeah. So that you understand that um, if there's anything that's going to destroy the moment, mm -hmm. it's... Um, voices that sound too strident or too harsh mm -hmm. so that you understand that it has it lives in a particular place and that the work that has been happening in the trenches must continue because right. it's what gave it force right. and gave right. it life right right you know well and and you talk about in one of your writing about the commodification of black girl magic and like you said these hashtags which are seemingly irrelevant um, and be, have become so mainstream what do they what do they what are they Even celebrating? Me. What are they celebrating? Who are yeah. they highlighting? And yet, for my 15-year-old daughter and others, they see that. It's kind of like the Obama thing. They yeah. see that as the normal now. I'm black girl magic. This yeah. is who I am. Yeah. And there isn't necessarily a pause to look behind. Yeah. Um, so it's almost, it's almost as if we need both. You need and, both. And you need both. And any time, yeah, anytime yeah. something, I mean, the, the reason why black girl magic works so well is because it's so affirming in a world that has never affirmed black women. Yeah. And as I said before, even with our writing, if we look back at the last 20, 30, 50 years of, of black women and African women's writing, we have read one another. Mm -hmm. If you look at who reviews black women's words, yeah. it's black women. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas actually we read, we have to read Steinbeck. Grapes of Wrath. Right. We've all read that right, thing. Right, Dickens, um, check. Dickens, um, F. Scott Fitzgerald. Right, We've right. read it. Would F. Scott Fitzgerald, had he been a contemporary of Toni Morrison, have read her Absolutely. and reviewed her? Sure. Right? So we have to know the mainstream, mm -hmm. but we are never considered part of it, and they don't have mm. to read us, right? Yeah. So Black Girl Magic exists in that context. It is yeah. extremely important to affirm yourself in a global context in which we are rarely affirmed. At the same time, let us be... Uh, able to ascertain what are we affirming mm -hmm. we are affirming Michelle Obama who is beautiful has amazing arms that we all aspire <laughs> to that is the truth yes um can walk through any room yes. and be like wow she's yeah. amazing black girl magic does not affirm the woman that's in the projects that's hustling that's keeping her kids mm -hmm. together mm -hmm. that is um that is you know on making it work on food stamps and loans mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and yet that's magic yeah given absolutely. the structural forces that are aligned against right, that woman right. so it's just important to recognize that black girl magic affirms a certain kind of excellence um, black excellence means a certain thing and it's an assimilationist yeah, thing yeah i am mm. that assimilationist thing so i get it like yeah. i love being affirmed in yeah, black girl magic yeah. but let me not um pretend that that's the only kind of magic and let me not pretend that that kind of magic isn't a function of me being middle class. And but all but that who stuff. is giving that, I guess, that significance to that understanding? Because when you say it doesn't really affirm that that struggle or the woman who is struggling, in my mind, I think it would if that woman was given space, maybe in the social media, yeah, in the, in the conversations we're having in social media or in the mainstream media, wherever it is. It's not that she's not magic. It's maybe that. We have, I don't know, maybe our vision is too narrow to, rec to recognize her when she's in the room. I don't know. So this is why I say, this is why I say that um, social media is not real life. Mm. Because, and that, and, and that we have to be light with it. Yeah. Because, um, because the reason she's not getting hyped on social media is because women like me are not hyping her. Yeah. And if I did hype her, wh what would that look like? Would it look like me 
walking into a project and taking a picture of her mm -hmm. and how does that objectify mm -hmm. her mm -hmm. that's crazy on some yeah, level right sure. and so that's why social media on the one hand we have to be light with it and recognize it's not real life mm -hmm. and on the other hand because we know it influences our girls and their sense of what mm -hmm. m matters in the world i don't want my sankara my mm -hmm. daughter to think that the only kind of magic that counts is the magic of her mother. Mm -hmm. I want her to be exposed to the magic of a woman who's struggling and hustling because she was born poor right. and she's stri striving to right. make something different of her life. Mm -hmm. The question is, how do I do that in a real life way, in a grounded way? Yeah. And that's by exposing her to different right, kinds of right. life. Yeah, right? and I guess that's where it goes to what we were talking about earlier in that the work is not this grand scheme. It is the one day-to-day -day interaction Absolutely. at the dinner table, at the market, where you exactly. have a moment to highlight justice and truth for those in your sphere of influence. And Absolutely. one of the people I respect most talks about your sphere of influence. Stay there, Stay because that's where you can have an influence. impact. And that might be three people, yep. but those, those three matter. Um, I always like to close my shows by asking my guests you know, where they consider home, and your book, Always Another Country. <laughs> it's probably a very loaded question for you, but I love that title, Always Another Country. I can hear it in so many voices of you from your, from your childhood up to adulthood. Um, but yeah, I would love to hear from you now as a woman who come home in some ways and chosen homes in other ways. Where is home for you, Susanke? Well, I feel like um, there is something that I say uh, in my book that might be a good place to end. Okay, great. Um, so in my book, I, I reflect. I mean, the, the, so the reason I wrote this book was because I wanted to think about home and belonging. So the mm. idea of home was central to this book uh, because it's something that I've grappled with my whole life. Yeah. And, um, and I hadn't figured it out when I started writing. Mm. I had figured a lot out, but I hadn't figured out the home part of it. Yeah. And, so, um, and so I'll read um, a little bit of when I think I realized what home means Perfect. to me. Great. Okay. So my mom passed away in 2014. Mm. Mm. And so I say, when, when mommy died, I felt a profound sense of loss. I also became profoundly lost. I was, as Rebecca Solnit describes it, both missing an element and in an entirely new terrain. Mm. I was suddenly aware that the world was larger than my knowledge of it. In many ways, perhaps more than lost, I felt homeless. I did not know where to go to feel at home. Our house, where we had lived for so many years in South Africa, felt haunted, no longer there for any particular purpose except as a meeting place for the grieving. There was nowhere on earth that I could go where I might find her, and so I felt that quite abruptly. I had gone from knowing who I was and where I was going, sorry, I had gone from who I was, from knowing who I was and where I was going to belonging to no one and to knowing nothing. Mm. When she died, I lost the surest home I had ever had. Mm. Her death helped me to understand. I had always had a home, even as I was searching for a country. So beautiful. Wow. So home is who you love. Yeah, absolutely. Right? It's like absolutely. home is in the connections that you have, the family that you make. Mm -hmm. And this is what my mother's life was kind of teaching mm. us, that she was home for us yeah and that yeah. if there was any legacy that she gave us which I, I think there were many 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 what a you know fantastic character yeah. 
it was um, the ability to go wherever life took us within our control or outside of our control and to make that place home. Beautiful. Thank you, Sasanke, for your words. Your, your words about your mother capture so much of what we're trying to explore here is how do we create a home and how do we make it somewhere we want to be? And thank you for your words. Thank you for your book, Always Another Country, by Sasanke Misumang. It's been a delight to have you here. Thank, thank you, friend. You. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to Uproot. It really means a lot to me. As always, you can find me on Facebook, Uproot the Podcast, on Twitter, at Uproot and Lil. You see what I did there? And at lilybagellapiper.com. Please comment, let me know what you like, what you didn't like, what ideas you might have, what we should explore on Uproot. I would love to hear from you. And as always, remember, you have to keep at it until it becomes rooted. Thanks for listening, y'all. See you next time.